0: Hi, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Art, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Allison Lee, one of the co-hosts of the channel and assistant professor of art history at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. Today, I'm excited to be interviewing Christian Kleinbub about his new book, Michelangelo's Inner Anatomies, which was published by Penn State University Press in 2020. Dr. Klembub is Professor of Italian Renaissance Art at The Ohio State University and is also co-director of the New Foundation of Art History. He is the author of the award-winning Vision and the Visionary in Raphael, which was also published by Penn State University Press. His other publications focus on a wide range of subjects, from the visibility of angels, Representational conflicts between antiquarianism and Christianity and the Paragone of painting and sculpture these have appeared in edited volumes and leading journals such as the Art Bulletin, Renaissance Quarterly, and the Burlington Magazine. The book he wrote, which we'll be discussing today, challenges the notion that uh, excuse me that Michelangelo was merely concerned with the portrayal of superficial anatomy that is the parts of the body that can be seen from the outside. Instead, Dr. Clambub investigates what he calls Michelangelo's inner anatomical poetics, revealing the artist's beautiful bodies as objects of profound intellectual and spiritual significance. In the process, he illuminates how Renaissance discourses on anatomical organs informed Michelangelo's figures, linking interior experiences to physiological processes associated with sex, love, devotion, and contemplation among a number of other realms of experience. Drawing upon theological, philosophical, and scientific texts, Dr. Kleinbub shows how Michelangelo created a context-driven practice which could be adjusted according to the needs of an individual commission or manipulated to embody a variety of meanings. I'm here to tell you it is a captivating book and one that I think has both a really subtle power and a kind of elegant density to it. Uh, It surely stands to make an impact on our thinking, even about one of history's greatest artists who I think we we believe we know everything about. So I hope you enjoy our conversation. Christian Kleinbub, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, thanks for having me. (laughs)
0: It's great to have you. So I wondered if we might kind of start just to introduce our audience to you generally, if you could tell us a bit about yourself, where you were born, where you attended graduate school, uh, mentors you may have had, how you became interested in the Italian Renaissance. You're welcome to take this in any direction you want, but we'd like to know a bit more about you.
1: Where to begin? Uh, I I grew up in San Diego, California, uh, which may sound like a world away from Raphael and Michelangelo, but it may be that it's the very reason that I am where I am. Oh, uh, early on, <laughs> I was very aware that I loved history and art, and normally both of them together. And in particular, I was deeply attracted to worlds that were very unlike the one that surrounded me, uh, and a long list of places like ancient Egypt, the Mayans, Ottoman Turkey. Uh, medieval Japan uh, carried my fascination um, in Mm. childhood. And of course, like everyone else, I thought at the time, I still pretty much think this, that San Diego is unparalleled in the world in terms of its climate and its scenic beauty. Um, Books and travel taught me that there was more to dream about than what modern California had often papered over. Uh, Mm -hmm. And it isn't news to a native, and it certainly goes down better today than, say, a decade ago. But California, and specifically Southern California, despite its apparent newness, is actually blessed in all things cultural and historical. There's enough Mm -hmm. sticking through the surface to lead you to other places and things. Mm -hmm. So I was lucky, too. My parents, um, who I deeply love, uh, are very interested in art. And they took my brother and I to museums and other cultural institutions constantly. And I must have been very young, I think probably not much older than four or five, when I asked my mother whether or not heaven would look like the beautiful green park at the center of San Diego, Balboa Park, which is this colonial revival um, setting of Beautiful historical buildings, pastiche buildings, where most of the best art museums and cultural institutions in San Diego live. Um, my family would go often, and I remember seeing wonderful works like Peter Bruegel the Elder's Parable of the Sower at mm-hmm. the Timken Museum, or yes. the amazing still life by Coton and the Giorgione portrait at the San Diego Museum of Art, and the Indian miniatures that are so famous that are kept there. And later well, I, I remember, yeah, you I mean, go, it's I a, didn't,
0: yeah, I didn't even know that Cotan is there. Oh my God. It's a go great Cotan.
1: I know it's <laughs> such a rarity it and is, in yeah. San Diego. <laughs> oh, it was I had a no huge idea. surprise. Um, so yeah, I mean later I got into things like light and space art that was prominent in San Diego and collected there. And the 20th century architecture of the place, Irving Mm. Gill's amazing idiomatic 20th century buildings, early 20th century buildings, and of course, Louis Kahn's Salk Institute, which I think is his masterpiece. Mm. And, you know, at the time, I wasn't necessarily aware of just how rare and strange these things were, you know, having a Giorgione portrait or Mm. a Peter Mm. Bruegel, the elder, I think there are like three or four in the country. These were really wonderful things and they totally had an impact on my life. And I think I decided very early that I wanted to saturate my entire life with these thrilling things, these things Mm. of imagination, because I wanted life to be something enhanced and played out on a more epic plane. I guess most people think that way. Um, They probably take it in different directions than I did. But for me and some close friends, um, I felt I had the calling To do intellectual things and had a face that art could have a profound beneficial effect on my life.
0: Mm-hmm. Well I certainly agree with you there. I guess the the follow-up question though though there are many. I mean I, I you know I'd love to hear about did you did you stay in California for graduate school? Did you depart? But maybe you can answer that while also kind of moving us towards how you came to write this particular book on Michelangelo, but then you know you also wrote on Raphael. How I'm just fascinated and I imagine our listeners will be too. How does one decide to take on the biggest most canonical, most sort of revered artists of this Italian Renaissance period, um, and and come to write a book like Michelangelo's Inner Anatomies. So how did how did you get there?
1: Uh, kind of by accident. Okay. <laughs> That's All right. how you do it. That's where <laughs> you find way. the courage. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was I was at Columbia in New York City for my graduate oh, okay. degree and I worked with David Roseanne and David Friedberg there and yeah. Um, I had a lot of trouble finding a dissertation topic, actually. And I was kind of flailing around trying to find something that I thought would be interesting um, and interesting enough to really find readers. And I was, I guess you could say, drawn to Raphael because I found in pictures like, say, the Transfiguration, a sort of, disharmony of temporalities in so far as the transfiguration takes place in gospel time. But in Raphael's representation of it, there's figures who are witnessing it, either directly or indirectly, who aren't actually part of gospel time. They're saints from later on. Um, They may be characters in the Bible who weren't on the mountain to see Christ himself Mm -hmm. transfigured. So I wanted to explain how Raphael could bring all those figures together. And Mm -hmm. I decided in my dissertation that um, it was because they, these kind of outside figures were seeing it in visionary terms. They were seeing it internally as kind of images inside themselves. And that weirdly enough is also what launched this second book on Michelangelo, because as I was writing about Raphael's transfiguration in particular, I was very interested in this one figure in red, this apostle who closed his eyes, um, points to his heart and points to Christ above the mountain. Uh, And this figure thus shows us how you can see Christ on the mountain, even if you weren't there, because he sees Mm -hmm. Christ internally. Uh, And when I was researching this figure and trying to make sense of him, um, I started looking for parallels and I happened upon Uh, Michelangelo's very strange image, the Nole Metangre, which, as you know, yeah, it's an interesting (laughs) thing, which, as you know, Michelangelo designs, but Pontormo paints. And yes,
0: I wonder if you could say more about this, even though we're we're (laughs) skipping ahead into into the, the meat of the book itself. But please go ahead.
1: Yeah, it's so I mean, it's strange because, of course, in the gospel um, christ tells mary when he appears to her resurrected not to touch him she wants to touch him because he's just come back from from the dead of course who doesn't want me. that
0: hug yeah, yeah well, he, she wants
1: that <laughs> hug and and in all the other images or most of them in any case you know christ is like you know stepping away from her or, you know waving his arms at her like leave me alone <laughs> um, and in michelangelo's image christ does step away from her, but at the same time, he kind of does what he's just told her not to do because he reaches out and touches her left breast, mm-hmm. um, and he's indicating the heart underneath that breast, um, and it just seems like a contradiction. Like Christ, you just said, "Don't touch me," and yet here you touch her. And mm-hmm. and uh, I sought even as I was writing this dissertation on Raphael, some sort of theological explanation for this weird gesture. Mm-hmm. Um, which also carries this whiff of erotic about it, which is kind For of sure. strange and potentially disturbing.
0: Yeah, and, at one point in the book, and this we're talking about the fourth chapter, and I yeah. promise listeners we'll go back, we'll circle back around. But this was one of my favorites. So you call this, and this struck me so so much the uncannily erotic, this gesture that he makes yeah. towards her or pulls it pulling away from her. Um, I did wonder. If you've gotten any flack for this interpretation, you know, I, I know even the Renaissance is not my field. It can be staunchly defended <laughs> in terms of these interpretations, you know, what Panofsky said, messing around with these things is, is really, really dangerous work. So I'm sure you presented this at conferences or bits of it at, in lectures, mm-hmm. invited things and I wonder, have people said, no, no, Christ is not touching Mary Magdalene, or, I mean, you even inferred that maybe the touch has already occurred and, and he's pulling away, which, is, you know, it's like, I mean, it really forces you to, to look at this painting again and to look at the others that you include by Botticelli and Frangelico and, and, you know, think, wow, this is a different representation. So have other Renaissance scholars come at you at all about this, or, or you've gotten a good amount of agreement?
1: I think... I found to my surprise that most people do agree, um, but good, there have some people good. who didn't. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, I think, you know, the, the nail in the coffin of this argument is really that if you're up close to the painting, and I'm not the only person who've noticed this, you can actually see the fingers indented in the breast. There's a shadow yeah. and the drapery kind of is pressed in. Um, and so I, I think it's pretty definitive that contact mm-hmm. is being made in this case. Um, but there are people...
0: more, more reasons why you have to look at these artworks in person yeah. as though, as though we don't have to tell them enough, but I agree. There are things like that, the little shadow in the fabric that you just can't see in reproduction. It's critical,
1: right? <laughs>
0: I should tell everyone that this book is so beautifully illustrated. Uh, it, it is a pleasure to behold aside from the content, just to sort of thumb through and look at these images and you have sort of done, or the, the designer did a beautiful job in including what you're talking about on the page. Even if it meant re, you know, showing another detail of an image you already had several pages back, it makes it so, so nice to see the things you're talking about right there when you're reading it. So if, if there's any reason to get this book aside from the, the incredible argument in it, it's, it's for seeing these images in the way that they've been reproduced. They
1: did a really good job. I, Penn State. Is amazing, and I've worked yeah. with them now twice, as you mentioned, and mm-hmm. I was very happy. <laughs> with plug A plug
0: for Penn State here on the podcast. Definitely. <laughs> Definitely,
1: Eleanor Goodman and and her various colleagues do an incredible job.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I w- I was gonna ask you, you know, as you as you're describing. Uh, you've already kind of hit on a number of my questions so one of them was which of these chapters was conceptualized first I, I always have the thing when I read scholars books where I try to guess which one was actually the the sort of seed that, that led mm-hmm. to the others so I and I think a lot of listeners especially students who might be listening maybe you guys don't realize we don't generally write books in order or Christian, no. I just say do you do you because I didn't write my book in order it was sort of all over the place back and forth and um, my guess was that the Venus and Cupid, uh, chapter, chapter three might've been the first. And this is another, we should point out where it's, it wasn't painted by Michelangelo. It was designed by him and then painted by an artist named Jacopo Pantormo. I'm saying it right. Am yeah. I Christian? Okay. Um, but this one, I, I had something about it that I thought, Ooh, I, I wonder if this was the first one, but so it turns out the Noli Tangere was the, was the inception point for the whole book.
1: It was, but you're not far wrong because the second image I found that, you know, certainly needed to be in the book was that very Venus and mm, Cupid. Good. Like it, it was the the first thing to look at when you're writing on the Me Tangre. And, and, you know, the pointing to her heart is, you know, yeah. Venus points to her heart in that painting. It's utterly obvious that something internal related to internal anatomy is going on there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Yes. I mean, it it kind of grew out from the middle of the book. The third and fourth chapters were kind of the beginning of it. And um, then it kind of then wrote all the other chapters in order. Mm. Uh, It it was like four and some parts of three and then one, two, five. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, That's the way it felt to me as a reader, except that I (laughs) thought maybe three was first. But um, yeah, you know, if, if you're listening to this and, and you're not sort of in the car or, and have access to, to searching, you know, do a Google search or, or whatever search engine you use for this Venus and Cupid painting, which I'll admit I had never seen before. I feel almost bad that it's like, it was off my radar. You you figure you've seen everything Michelangelo ever painted, ever <laughs> sculpted, but no, this one. So why did, why didn't he paint this? And Maybe this is a too personal of a question, but do you too wish Michelangelo had painted this? I mean, Pantormo's not a bad painter, but oh, Michelangelo is such an amazing painter
1: <laughs> i it's It's hard to unthink what's done mm. there. Uh, i It was because he was too busy is the short oh, okay. answer to your okay. your question. Um, the slightly longer answer to your question, though, is that Michelangelo clearly in this moment the 1530s perhaps even earlier has kind of decided that the work that he does best is conceptual kind of blueprint of the image Mm -hmm. and he has come to think of the actual execution of images as kind of beneath him to a certain degree Mm -hmm. though he continues Mm -hmm. to do it occasionally um, when prompted by a pope or especially great patron he will he will do it but Increasingly kind of becomes um, a snob about artistic <laughs> process and you know he writes to um, some of his family members and he said, "I'm not an artist who had ever kept a shop um, you know he he sees himself as aristocratic, and in fact, he is from what you could claim barely as the minor nobility of." Florence, and it's clear that he used the immense riches he heaped up over the course of his career to kind of reestablish his family in Florence. His nephew, um, for instance, becomes one of his big heirs eventually. Um, And he's trying to refound his family, which he claims probably erroneously descends from the Counts of Canossa, but that means that he can't get his hands dirty all the time. It's only Mm -hmm. under uh, duress. He, he seems to suggest that he's willing to wield a brush or a chisel, even though, as we know, he was carving practically the, the day he died. Um, mm-hmm. But this is part of a mythology of the man, and I think it has a reality to it, insofar as everybody wanted something from him. So these mm-hmm. paintings get produced. Um, and in many ways, they're, they shouldn't be seen as second tier, despite the fact that he doesn't execute them, because in the thinking of the time, collaboration was fairly acceptable. And it seems that people often did think that the conception was the critical element, even though there's Mm -hmm. those contracts that say, you're in there, like, this must be painted by the artist himself, not Mm -hmm. an assistant. Um, So these, these paintings are an anomaly, but despite the fact that they're collaborations, they become really famous. And especially mm-hmm. the Venus and Cupid, it's one of the most famous images of the 16th century in Italy. It has numerous copies made of it. And even though it's kind of hung high on a wall in the Academia in Florence and no one really pays any attention to it anymore, they really should. It, it deserves, mm-hmm. and it has gotten more and more scholarly attention um, in the last decade or so. But um, it, it's a major work. And that work, like the Nole Me Tangre, turn out to be really intimate works too, despite their fame and popularity, because they're made for friends or people who become friends. Uh, Both of them shouldn't be considered secondary on that level either. They're made for sophisticated people who Michelangelo knows, uh, and he's not doing the same thing he might have done in a public image in them. He's not... um, Producing an altarpiece, for instance, for a major Mm -hmm. cathedral or church space. He uh, addresses the Venus and Cupid to his very good friend Bettini, who, like Michelangelo, is really interested in Tuscan poetry like Dante, Boccaccio, and Petrarch. And it's Mm -hmm. meant as a sort of homage to their shared interest in Tuscan poetry. And as you know, Michelangelo himself becomes a great poet. I mean, he's considered... Mm -hmm also a major uh, artist in literature, um, just as he is in the visual arts. Um, but so this painting is addressed at this sort of group of people who are interested in literature that are close friends and are members of his circle. And, and so this image, like the Nolime Tangere, despite its scale, um, despite the weird nature of the collaboration involved, these are images that probably reveal a lot about Michelangelo personally and the people we got mm-hmm. along with.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, at one point you you discuss in this Venus and Cupid chapter the I think you call it the painting's fertility, which I I really I mean it worked in a lot of different ways, but speaks to what you're describing in terms of how this is such a famous painting. It was so influential. It was sort of ripped off in various ways by artists who came after um and and has had this kind of fertile presence that we seem to have lost sight of a little bit so it's it's nice to hear you kind of say that i want to touch on on two things first of all since you're beginning to talk about michelangelo's poetry which uh if i imagine most of our listeners know that michelangelo wrote poetry i think most of us when we teach michelangelo find a way to at least include the the little uh, ditty he wrote about to painting the Sistine ceiling, yeah. and you know you talk at great sort of fascinating length about about this too, and in a way that I had never thought about the the inner anatomy of how he's contorting himself and understandings of the brain and different ventricles. But um, I picked out just a few lines of Michelangelo's poetry, which you mostly focus on in chapter two, though it's it's dotted in in nice places throughout the book. And I thought I might read a few of these lines. I don't know if you have any memorized or that you'd like to pull out as well. But these, I I just want our listeners to, to kind of... Uh, realize that they should be thinking about Michelangelo in the way you're describing as a writer, in addition to being astoundingly talented as a sculptor and a painter. So I liked uh, I've got them pulled up here on my on my laptop. All right, how about this one's a, a little bit long. it's for four stanzas or so, but um, so this is Michelangelo, Oh God, oh God, oh God, how can someone pierce my heart who doesn't seem to touch me? What is this thing, O love, that enters the heart through the eyes and in the small space inside it seems to expand? So, oh, man. (laughs) Um, And there there are lots of others like that. You talk about this one line where he, he describes his heart as being made into an anvil and his breast into a bellows so that they could both forge si- size with the flame uh, mm-hmm. that someone has kindled in him. So, um, uh, you know, how, what, what do I even say about this? How did you become interested in this poetry? I, I feel like I'm asking a silly question. It's, it's yeah. obvious, but, um, you know, do you want to talk at all about what you do with this poetry? Because it it's really is a fascinating thing, again, at the heart of the book in chapter two, where you do this work.
1: Yeah, I, it, it was something that I was familiar with. All along, um, my advisor at Columbia, David Roseanne, loved these poems and assigned Mm. them, for instance. So I was familiar with them already. And once, you know, I was on the trail, on the hunt, and I had noticed the heart gestures in Benola Tangre and the Venus and Cupid, among others, I I recalled the poems. And as you just demonstrated, they are riddled with references to inner Mm -hmm. anatomical subjects. What's kind of Strange to the contemporary modern uh, reader of these poems, though, uh, is that he's not using the heart necessarily metaphorically the way we still do in our love poetry. You know, I might say that someone broke my heart Mm -hmm. in a metaphorical capacity, but of course, you and I don't believe that anything happened in the actual organ. My heart, right? We know it happened in my brain, (laughs) right? Exactly. I guess one could have a heart attack, right? And and prove me wrong. But um, (laughs) but for people in this period, this sort of uh, we call metaphor of the heart also could be backed up by an anatomical theory, and that was one of the weird things that the poetry led me to understand was that a lot of people in this period had. Overlapping and sometimes contradictory ideas about internal anatomy. And a lot of the things we consider mere metaphors were not. And the poetry allowed me to kind of go there. It allowed me to not only illustrate and give evidence for this fact, but to show how pervasive it was. And Mm -hmm. since Michelangelo was a big poet and talked a lot about poetry, and a lot of his friends were scholars or writers of poetry. Um, It really was the best textual proof, if the images weren't enough, about what he was doing. Um, Mm -hmm. And so poems definitely became instrumental in this this manuscript. And like you say, they appear everywhere in all the chapters, even though I take them up in themselves in chapter two, because Mm -hmm. they help me show what's going on. And you mentioned the famous scaffold poem of Michael mm-hmm. Flo, which is such a weird poem. He yeah. is complaining to a friend in this poem about how he's on the scaffold, he's having to stand upright and stick his beard straight upwards, vertically, mm-hmm. in order to see what he's doing with his hand. And the paint is falling into his eyes as he does so. And there's these interesting allusions in the poem to Anatomy and in ways that have never been explained. So for instance, Mm -hmm. he says somewhat enigmatically that while he's in this contorted position, his memory touches the top of his back. Mm -hmm. Um, Memoria is the Italian word. And it's like, what does this mean? As the contemporary reader of Michelangelo, it makes absolutely no sense. And in fact, I know that Saslow, who's the great um, scholar and translator of these poems in English, um, didn't really know anything more than in Michelangelo's time, the back of the head, back of the brain, was where they thought memories were stored. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so, but what I did with this, and I, I decided, well, why does he bring this up? This seems like a rather arcane or esoteric bit of an anatomical knowledge that is kind of thrown into a poem complaining about painting something. And what I discovered is that Michelangelo is very much aware of all these further implications of the fact that his memory is touching the top of his shoulders. He is referring, as it turns out, to an anatomical theory about the workings of the brain that Mm -hmm. says that the position of your head affects the quality of your thoughts. Because people in this period, as you read in the book, uh, thought that there were these quasi-corporeal Vapors traveling between organs in the body and inside of organs in the body, and they believed the brain had three main chambers: front, middle, and back. And the back was memory, but the middle of the brain was where the intellect and judgment were. Um, And if you're doing something that's important or difficult mentally, you need the spirits to be in that central part of the brain to guide you through that process. And they also say, the anatomists who write about this, that if you throw your head backwards so that the back of your head touches your shoulder blades or your back, that prevents these spirits because of this worm like uh, door that exists between these two spaces. It prevents those spirits from traveling into the center of the brain. And thus, they cut off, this position cuts off intellectual judgment. Um, Mm -hmm. And so when Michelangelo is painting that ceiling and writing this poem and drawing himself in this difficult position with his head thrown back and looking at the ceiling, he's also referring in the poem to an anatomical explanation for why he's not going to do well. And of course, we know he did well. Michelangelo liked to complain. (laughs) But he's actually doing something rather learned here. And Mm -hmm. presumably his... His um, interlocutor would have understood this, and would have understood that Michelangelo's position physiologically is the wrong one to do something important like painting mm-hmm. the Sistine Ceiling.
0: It's, I mean, it's a, a major discovery. It really, it really is one of many in the book. But I, I know personally, I won't ever be able to teach that poem again. I mean, undergraduates tend to to love when you do Sistine Chapel lecture. I always you know, make sure that I I work that in and show the little sketch or doodle of himself that's included. But now being able, especially in a sort of gen ed, general education classroom, or you've got those who are pre-med students and nursing, you know, to be able to rope them in by explaining, as you just did so so beautifully, these different understandings of the the parts of the brain and the the, the worm-like chamber that connects them. Um, it, it's it's just it's next level, as as Michelangelo always is. But I think it, it moves us this book and and these kinds of. Um, arguments you're forming in in directions that are exciting for for those who come from these other fields and are coming to artistry I think hoping to find something for themselves like understandings of anatomy and the body and mm-hmm. um, uh, it's 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 just great I, I can't recommend it enough. Um, there's one other thing and you you don't make a huge deal of it. I think it actually is in, in chapter two. But I, I, wondered, you know, since I kind of have you on the line, if I could prod you a bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, you say briefly that um, Michelangelo would sometimes use the poetry as an opportunity to to change gender. Mm-hmm. Uh, you describe him, I think, as ambidextrous in his desires. Which, oh, I, I love that turn of phrase, and want you to say more about that. Um, but you make this kind of subtle claim, um, couched in much. Larger stuff um, about Michelangelo maybe wanting to keep prying eyes from discerning too much about his private or innermost self, and doing this kind of ambidextrous sliding between genders as a means of um, of keeping that stuff private. So, can you say more about that in terms of the poetry? Does he do this frequently? Are there other tactics maybe he uses, or is gender really the primary one where you see this kind of folding of the innermost self such that it remains private?
1: Yeah, it, it, it's something that maybe you see one or, in one or two images uh, mm-hmm. where uh, maybe he thinks that um, gender plays a large role, for instance, in anatomical matters. But it is primarily something we see in the poems. And in the poems, as you know, Michelangelo is often writing about his own love, his feelings for other people. And although we don't know who's addressed um, in all of them, we know that some of them were in fact addressed to men. And Mm -hmm. um, Michelangelo seems to have been at least bisexual. Um, Mm -hmm. Some people think he was fully homosexual. There's some lively debate around that. Um, Mm -hmm. These categories didn't really exist as we think of them today, of course, at the same time. Um, But Michelangelo seems to have been a little worried that he'd be misunderstood, too. He, he seems to, on a few occasions, to want to reassure people that his love isn't of the romantic kind. So he has, um, he has this kind of intense love for this handsome young nobleman, Tommaso Cavalieri, uh, who is a man. And he has to reassure him in some of this poetry that he isn't interested in him romantically, that the artist is actually just in love with his beauty and his mind. Um, He's proposing, in a way, platonic love. Uh, But you feel the tension in the poetry. And Mm -hmm. um, so Michelangelo is often put in this position of protesting too much, you might say. But uh, (laughs) it's really his later editors who kind of um, then clean it up. And it's been one of the functions of modern scholarship to try and strip that away again. Um, they've tried to clean up um, some of the homoerotics of the poems. They've tried to you know, obscure the fact that very often the love poems aren't addressed to women. Um, but another weird thing, as you alluded to, is that some of these poems addressed to women um, seem to be romantic, and then that person is transformed into a man. Mm. And you know, oh, this wow. is somewhat harder to explain, but it seems yeah. that you know he had very close, a very close friendship with Victoria Colonna, who was this mm-hmm. Roman noblewoman, a widow, and a great poet in her own right. And they both shared a mutual interest in religion, in particular, and they they shared poems and drawings with one another. Um, it's really a touching friendship, and at times almost a collaboration. But Michelangelo, in the misogynist thinking of his own times, sometimes seems to address her as if she is a man. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's kind of like their friendship is too elevated um, in Michelangelo's mind to just be a man-woman affair. It has to Mm -hmm. be all male. Um, Mm -hmm. So you see these weird moments where the occasion warrants gender-switching on his part or his interlocutor part sometimes he becomes the female in these poems too. Mm.
0: so when you were saying before that that scholars have sort of tried to gloss this a bit and and we can understand especially in different time periods and cultures why is it through translation you think that they primarily do it or or is it through actual editing i mean i work on russian and soviet so mm-hmm. there's a good amount of of editing that goes on to to avoid homosexuality for sure, but, but also affairs that artists had. And mm-hmm. I'm always interested in how this occurs exactly. Cause there are a number of ways you can do it.
1: Right. Uh, in this case, at least the early stuff was full out editing where things were mm-hmm. removed or replaced. Um, mm. And it wasn't just, you know, a a slight, you know, modification of a word or a gender. Um, there was that too, but there is an actual cleanup process in the 17th century. And happily Uh, the poems in their original form do survive in the Buonarroti family collection, now the Casa Buonarroti in Florence. And so scholars later um, in the modern period could recover the actual um, original wording, uh, but thank, yeah, it was it was goodness. a whitewash campaign and, uh-huh. and you have the sense that the early sixteenth century, and this isn't my idea, this is this is well known in the field, the early sixteenth century is a lot looser about these things as was the fifteenth century. It's really uh-huh. after the Catholic Church begins to take seriously the threat of Protestantism in the middle of the sixteenth century that a lot of this stuff tends to be scrutinized more. And it's not just mm-hmm. heresy. It's wayward behavior of all kinds. And um, it's not just the Inquisition, but there's a, lot more, um, there's a lot more surveillance, you could say, going on. And Michelangelo's own religious beliefs um, might have been scrutinized if he had lived longer, in fact, mm-hmm. too. He mm-hmm. had some sympathy, though he remained a Roman Catholic, He had some sympathy with certain ideas um, that you can also associate with Luther, as did some of his friends like Vittoria Colonna. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's a lot about Michelangelo that by the 17th century didn't look like it was right and proper that Mm -hmm. needed to be disguised if his reputation was going to continue. Um, And, Michelangelo famously is held up by his first biographers and all subsequent biographers as a very moral individual, a man of great ethics, um, and you know we can't for sure say what he actually was or wasn't, um, but mm-hmm. this became at least the rhetoric surrounding his life. And so um, when the time comes, it's actually one of one of his family members who as it edits the poems. Um, I think it's in the early 17th century or the late 16th century, uh, and cleans them up and publishes them. And so Mm -hmm. makes Michelangelo accessible as a role model to other artists or as a great person, a great man, Mm -hmm. as they would have said. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. I think I'm, I'm maybe... Interested in this kind of the rhetoric surrounding Michelangelo, certainly in the kind of historiography you're describing where uh, how do artists come to have the reputations or how do we come to have sometimes the misconceptions, you know, so mm-hmm. someone being uh, constantly described as a great man or a genius. You know, this, these mythologies are strong still in art history, despite our best efforts to Dismantle them to some extent, but it leads me to to maybe ask you about something that happens in in the first chapter towards the end, I believe, where you talk about a contemporary's description of Michelangelo's body, his his build, mm-hmm. um, and and I just found this like oh this is like the secret stuff. I mean i i, I don't, uh, we. Michelangelo maybe is an instance where we, we do have a sense of him because he's a sculptor and because that's such a physical activity mm-hmm. um, uh, of his physical presence. But I did wonder, are there more descriptions of him like this? I mean, the one that you included made me think of him as someone who was considered sort of handsome and brawny and, mm-hmm. and masculine, you know, in his own time. Later, you talk about the the yellow color of his eyes, someone mentioning that. And I was sort of like, whoa, Michelangelo had... You know these light, unusual colored eyes. So I know mean, it's not the maybe the most rigorous and, and historical of things, but can you say more about things that you came across? I mean, wh- was he known for his looks in his own time? I think listeners probably are excited by things like this.
1: He certainly is known for that build, um, but his face, unfortunately, for for um, for him, I suppose. Um, got messed up early on when a rival sculptor punched him in the face and broke his nose. So it was always Uh, crooked. Uh Um, And so Michelangelo was conflicted about his own beauty um, or lack thereof. And Mm -hmm. um, he clearly felt a little uncomfortable about descriptions, even though he may have produced this kind of self-portrait that you mentioned describing his own eyes, the yellow Mm -hmm. leonine eyes. he, nonetheless, despite whatever hesitation he might have had, was portrayed you know, dozens of times um, in his lifetime and afterwards. And he had become, because he lived such a long time, uh, a celebrity who um, had a certain pull on other artists who were up and coming and wanted to sit at the lap of the master and learn things. So. His image came to be circulated and um, it's really his image in many ways that is responsible for further promoting the visual arts as a serious discipline because relatively soon um, people like princes, kings, popes wanted that image um, Hmm. or knew that image, no matter where they were in Europe, in fact. Um, So the image becomes like a surrogate self, and Mm -hmm. um, whether he's happy with a lot of them, we really don't know. But people keep attempting to capture them in poems and words. And you know, you mentioned how well built and healthy he was. Um, You know, as I mentioned there too, this has an anatomical reason for being because in Michelangelo's thought and the thought of a lot of anatomists at the time, if you became for instance, fat, and maybe, uh, you had a softer body than Michelangelo did. Um, that may mean that you're actually disrupting the ideal constitution of the body, which is supposed to be a live, nimble and efficient mechanism. Um, people who eat too much and put on weight, uh, They, according to the anatomists of the time, are not going to think as clearly. Um, Mm -hmm. In the thinking of the time, uh, the food that that you you ingest, there's simply so much of it that it will cloud your brain. Those spirits that move around the brain that I mentioned earlier um, are going to become heavy and slovenly, like you yourself, Um, and they won't have the speed, the kinetic energy to make you think on your feet. Uh, and mm-hmm. so, weirdly enough, even these descriptions of Michelangelo clearly refer back to anatomical thought of the period mm-hmm. uh, and Michelangelo, when he's described by people like Condivi or Vasari, uh they're describing the ideal physical specimen of the artist too um, mm-hmm. someone who kind of lives in moderation, doesn't eat too much um they mention his continence, too. His, he doesn't you know, go out and have sex a lot, which is the thing, according to Vasari, that killed Raphael. Um, and mm. those sorts of anatomical processes actually dissipated your health and your mind too much in the thinking of the time. Um, mm. So Michelangelo, in the construction of this portrait, emerges as the ideal physical specimen, at least on the insides, um, when you're talking about art.
0: Yeah, it came across that that way to me, and I think certainly related nicely to the overarching topic of the book, the the thing that you mentioned so frequently, this idea of Michelangelo's bodily poetics, mm-hmm. um, and and maybe we should say that the bodily poetics which are at work in his time, which you're you're talking a lot about in a way that's nice. You know, the the two are intersecting. It isn't mm-hmm. just that Michelangelo is sort of. By himself, you know, coming up with all this on his own. You do a great job in the book of showing how there's a kind of dense web of various kinds of thinking and writing in multiple languages that that are intersecting with the formulations he has. So, um, can you say a little bit more about what you mean by this idea of bodily poetics? I think it's in the it's on the book book jacket too, and I, it was the one thing I was kind of given pause by when I first read what the book was going to be about. And, and I certainly understand it better now having read the book, but, um, maybe for just for listeners, this idea of what was Michelangelo's bodily poetics?
1: Yeah. The bodily poetics as I define them of Michelangelo, uh, is his way of taking different organs, um, and attributing to them different functions or properties. Uh, and the reason why it's a poetics and not a science is because there's very little that's scientific about it. And Michelangelo's time, as you read in the book, uh, there are at least four competing ideas about how internal anatomy worked. Philosophers had one. Theologians had another. Poets had another. Um, medical doctors had another. And often they attributed very different qualities to different organs. I mentioned the brain earlier and its capacity for judgment and memory and intellect. But some people didn't think the brain was the thinking organ of the body in Michelangelo's time. They thought the heart was, and they were following Mm. Aristotle in that. And so what Michelangelo does is he seems to think, when he's referring to the internal anatomy of a body, about the commission and the subject matter. And if he's making the commission, say it's the Venus of Cupid, Or a friend who likes Tuscan love poetry, he takes up the imagery of the internal body, like the heart and love, from that poetry. And in other words, that image then refers to that particular nexus of ideas and cultural meanings. Uh, When he then turns to a theological topic, like the Noleme Tangre, or a philosophical one, um, he will then Take up that discourse instead. And sometimes he'll even creatively cross-pollinate. He'll merge these discourses together, um, as he does in the Noleme Tangere, where the heart is treated as theologians treated it, as the seat of the soul, but he also kind of eroticizes the heart too, following the example of poetry. And so when I use the word an in inner anatomical poetics when I discuss Michelangelo, I'm talking about this way in which he manipulates these different systems. Um, he's not overly concerned about who's right or who's wrong, um, but he sees them as elements in the language and he can rearrange them at will to make them metaphorically mean totally new things if he needs them to. Mm-hmm. And yeah. poetry isn't science and Michelangelo is ultimately more a poet than a scientist.
0: Mm-hmm. Well said. Speaking of um sort of you know context and, and multiple meanings and, and overlap in the way that you are I couldn't help but be struck and I wonder if you have been you know in the wake of the, the book coming out by these Nole paintings in terms of their new relevance in our current pandemic situation yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean they are kind of the the perfect sort of hashtag mood <laughs> paintings mm-hmm. you know don't touch me but but also in the way that Michelangelo and was, but, you know, but also touch me, you know, you know, Mm this, I think you talk about the, the, they, capture something of the experience of having the opportunity to reach out, you know, and the the way that Christ reaches out to, or is beginning to pull away from Mary Magdalene. Mm -hmm. Uh, I just, I encourage our listeners to return. If you're not familiar with this very popular subject in the Renaissance period and Michelangelo slash Pantormo's treatment of it, it, it is relevant to our situation. Obviously you didn't write it <laughs> when we were when we were in the pandemic but have you been struck by this or contacted by anyone about how how much they're appreciating these paintings in new ways?
1: No, but I I am thrilled by this observation you're making. I think it it is really interesting to think about what it means to be not to be denied touch in mm-hmm. this picture and how it must have felt to Mary Magdalene and you know various philosophers have have wondered about this part of the gospel. Um, Nancy, for instance, wrote a whole book about it and how in a way, um, the fact that she's denied touch actually is a stronger statement about touch than if she had been allowed it. It mm. causes the imagination to wonder about what can't be touched and be absent, um, And we are all feeling those very themes right now. It's true. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. We feel the distance.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. And maybe we'll feel soon the this function of the heart that they had a sense of in the Renaissance that maybe we've lost touch with this idea that it's um, an inspiration, a flashpoint for multiple kinds of feeling and, and faith in in the way that you re- really get to the heart of uh, no pun intended. Oh, I, knew, I knew that was coming <laughs> um, by, by the end of this chapter that when we are able to return to a space where we can touch each other in, in the way that this painting is saying, you know, we can't for, for reasons that are beyond our ability to understand that we'll be inspired maybe if by in the way that Magdalene is in, in this painting or she looks to be in this painting by this really subtle touch that, that you're able to see, as you said, in person. Yeah. Wow. Well, I'm looking at the time. Christian, I, I feel like I've taken up a lot of your time, but I would be remiss if I didn't ask you the kind of traditional final question on, on the podcast, which is, tell us what you're working on now. What what can we look forward to in, in a couple of years? Is it more Michelangelo? Is it mm-hmm. Raphael? What, what direction are you going?
1: Uh, the jury is still out. Uh, my fr- oh. my friends like to joke that I should write a third book on Leonardo da Vinci to finish the triumph.
0: Yes. <laughs>
1: but I don't have and then
0: and Donatello, too. So I know. The students can think the ninja turtles are best. I know
1: that would be the fourth book, right? I yeah, I would I would love to fulfill those fantasies, but I haven't yet come up with anything
0: <laughs> to mm, say yeah. about either of those the Yeah, there's
1: always that. But um I may return to Raphael. I have one idea for a book. Where um, Raphael would figure very centrally, because in the Renaissance, people like Vasari and others comment that Raphael is this great theorist of art, that he wrote a lot about the theory of painting, except none of this writing exists anymore. It's disappeared, um, though Vasari says he learned from it. And um, since it's disappeared, <clears throat> excuse me, and since we have very little to go on, uh, I will. Been thinking. Well, maybe if we went back to the paintings and the drawings, and we studied them attentively enough, we might be able to reconstruct a theory of art from from those things, and we might be able to say a few things about what Raphael believed painting was about um, by looking at the pictures. So that's one thing that is percolating in the back of my mind. The other, um, which is further away from mm-hmm. maybe taking on definitive form would be something about how the artists of the Renaissance, when they approached particularly thorny subject matter from the gospels or scripture or theology had to often go out on a limb and invent a new iconography or make decisions about the partial account that scripture offers of a scene or event. And the resurrection is a good example of this. It's described nowhere in itself in the gospels, even as they do describe, as in the Nole Me Tangre incident, what Christ does once he's risen. We never see him coming out of the tomb in the gospels, but artists are constantly depicting him coming out of the tomb in glory. Um, and in a way, this is this is a, a sort of attempt to plug a gap in sp- The scriptural record. They want this scene to exist, despite the fact that we're not told about it. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I would be curious if there's more to say about that issue, about whether artists, when it comes time for them to become what is more or less theologians themselves, what their process is like, what their doubts and concerns are, and how they take up what is essentially a very serious task.
0: Wow. Oh both both of those projects sound great. I mean I was ready to be like, oh, the first one, but no, I think I think you need to write both of those books. <laughs> <I'm> sorry, Christian. <laughs> I know.
1: Give me fifteen um, years.
0: Yeah, I boy, I feel you there. Well, at least at least we're not, you know, devoid of of good ideas. Those those just both sound like they would be really, really great contributions. Thank you. Well, I I have to say that I enjoyed talking to you about your new book today. I hope maybe to talk to you about one of the the books that you just described when they when they come out and come to full fruition in the future. But I really think this one is a wonderful contribution to art history. My name is Allison Lee, and this is New Books and Art, a podcast channel, of course, on the New Books Network. I've been talking to Christian Kleinmub about his new book, Michelangelo's Inner Anatomies, and I do hope that many of you will give it a read. Thanks for listening, everybody.